1: And now, join
0: Kevin Hart as he dives into, into the, the minds of some of the world's funniest comedians. This is Comedy Gold Mines with Kevin Hart.
2: Welcome, world. Welcome to an all-new episode of Comedy Gold Mines, where we do what I said. Where we do what, goddammit? Where we get us out the minds of brilliant comedians, and oh my god, what amazing minds they are. There is no other place for you to find out the road, the journey, the story that these comics or comedic personalities have went to to get to where they now stand in the business. Only here at Comedy Gold mines And today, well, today I'm excited to get to know this story a little bit more because I know bits and pieces of it, but I don't know it all. I want to get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Lunel to Comedy Goldmines. Hey, Lunel.
3: Hi, everybody. What's up, Ken?
2: <laughs> How you doing?
3: I'm doing good, real good. Sunday morning, it's a little odd for me. I usually, I'm traveling on Sundays, but I didn't do this weekend like the others, so I happen to be home, so here we are.
2: You normally traveling back home uh from the weekend or you're normally traveling to another show? Or you don't which one yeah, back
3: home. Back, back home.
2: home. Back you a Sundays home. off comic? Like you don't you don't mess around with Sundays? You like to break on Sundays or you like to work on Sundays? No,
3: I don't have no, I'm I'm a Monday through Sunday
2: comic. There you go. It don't matter. There you go. Uh, a true hustler, uh is what you are, Lunel. And um When I said at the top of the show just now, in introduction, I said I'm excited to get into your story. I I know that you are from East Oakland, correct?
3: Well, I was born in Tallade, Arkansas, and uh, I was raised in the Bay Area, but I was bred in, in Oakland, California, East, North, and West. There's no South Oakland.
2: East, North, and West. How did you get to all those places? Why not just one? Why East, North, and West? You hopped around?
3: Well, you know, people move during their lifetime and stuff. And you know what's funny, Kevin? As you were saying that we're going to be completely transparent and honest in this interview.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
3: Okay. You're learning the same stuff as the audience is learning is that we've done four movies together but we've never sat down and talked.
2: We've we've never had a actual conversation. No. So, like we've we've talked. We've hey, what's up. And we've joked and we've been silly, but we've never actually had a conversation. No.
3: Yeah, that's crazy to me.
2: Well, I think it is crazy. I think it's crazy for two different reasons, right? Um, It shows you how, in this business, you can function and be functionable around personnel without absolutely, without having any absolute idea who that person really is, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're you're in the business where the handshake and the smile uh, can mean so much, and it's the assumption of, oh yeah, they're cool, or hey, yeah, that's, oh no, 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 I know them. Oh no, they, I've seen them a couple times without having any real dialogue um and that's that's why you're that's why you're on comedy gold minds, right like this um this this list of comics that i've been able to talk to um these are people that i have relationships with that i know but i feel like there's there's so much more behind the world of comic than what it is that i know and the reason why the conversations are so good is because they're authentic they're real. There are no forced questions. There are no written uh approaches to the interview. It's real questions with real answers. So when you say transparent, Luna, I don't want it to be any other way. I, I want it to be real. Um, you say all over um Oakland. You say, you know, east, north, west. Uh you, you said all over, and of course it's because of bouncing around, moving, etc. Before stand-up comedy was what?
3: Uh theater. Theater and television. But so you were asking how did I move around those places, let me just backtrack and say, I was born in Thailand, Arkansas. I have seven brothers and sisters. Wow. Um, My father got murdered when my mother was pregnant with me. Wow. So she was on the verge of like some sort of a breakdown. And my late father's sister and her husband adopted me out of the family, and I came to California. That's how my brothers and sisters was raised in the South, and I was raised in California. So we moved to Oakland when I was two months old. And then during my educational career, we moved to a suburb of Oakland, a white suburb of Oakland called Castro Valley, California, where I got my former education at. But I always flocked back to Oakland because my education was white, but my street knowledge was black, and I got that in Oakland.
2: Now, when you say uh, your your father was murdered, I mean, you're in your mom's belly at the time. This is all knowledge, of course, that you're coming across after you're old enough for people to tell you what happened. Um, you were taken in and loved by other members of the family how much did your father's death weigh on you as you were growing up even though you had the support of a brother and uh, i'm sorry you said a brother and a sister who, who is it that took you in
3: four brothers four brothers and three
2: sisters. four brothers three sisters and who took you in again and moved to california my aunt okay my aunt and her husband okay so with with the abundance of love from them to take you in um you now get older. The conversation of what happened to your dad is one that you now are knowledgeable about. What effect did that have on your life as you were coming up in that in that California time?
3: Well, it has an effect on you till this day because I've never really had a father. And you have to wonder, did my dad even know that my mom was pregnant with baby number eight, which was me?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: The man that my aunt was married to, my aunt is my blood aunt. She's my my late father's sister but the man she Mm -hmm. was married to was no blood kin to me. So he was not, it wasn't abundance of love in the household, it was abundance of material things. It was, we lived in the suburbs. I was raised very, very privileged, I would say, in comparison to my brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. I have a bachelor of arts degree in English literature. I had equestrian lessons, swimming lessons and all that, but he was very alcoholic and very abusive physically and mentally
1: mm-hmm. so
3: that turns you into a different person as well so you know then you grow up and you have the daddy issues and you like older men and this whole kind of thing it does something like that does uh form your your persona
2: what was your relationship with your brothers and sisters though even though they were in the South you were in California how close are you guys
3: well one thing that the alcoholic did do was tell me everything from the time I was little so I always knew that I had brothers and sisters, and we would go down and visit them in the summer times and stuff, which was good and bad because they have all bonded, and I'm the outsider. Mm -hmm. They're wearing hand-me-downs. I'm coming with a suitcase full of matching barrettes and sandals and shorts outfits. Mm -hmm. So there was a little contention there in the younger years, but we're very, 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 very thick, very, very close.
2: Now. now you you talk about the educational background, but which I love uh, because you highlighted that, right? You highlighted the fact that you know you did have a little uh, a more privileged background, but you gravitated towards the inner city, towards the the streets in Oakland. Where were you getting the connection? Who was it in your life um, that was giving you that side of opportunity and just being a part of this world? Right? Was that a family member that you went to the to the inner city of Oakland to, or was that just a discovery from you as you got older? or just traveling around?
3: Well, as I said, we moved to Oakland first and then moved out of Oakland. And I Mm -hmm. just gravitated back because um, there was a place called the Oakland Ensemble Theater in Oakland, and I had went to see a play. I think I went to see either South Pacific or Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death. And I saw a friend of mine's sister in this play and it was opening night we got to go backstage i saw the curtains and the ropes and the wardrobe and everything like that and we went to the um opening night festivities and they were drinking champagne and they were signing autographs and taking pictures and i was young like maybe about 10 or 12. Mm -hmm. and i know that that's when the light came on for me i said whatever this is i want to do this so the open ensemble theater was the black theater in Oakland that was grooming people for whatever path they would go on theatrically. When I was living in Castro Valley and attending school in Castro Valley, it was an all white school. There was only like 12 black people in the school. So I could never get cast as the lead in anything I auditioned for. I was always in the ensemble or you know some other insignificant role. When I went to Oakland Ensemble Theater, I got to learn everything about theater wardrobe makeup um sex and learn lines and blocking and all that kind of stuff so it just um was where my connection was plus I grew up in the era of the Black Panthers I saw the Black Panthers uh enforce the breakfast program in school when there was no breakfast program in school I wow. saw them do great things I heard the speeches I I was there so that sort of that and Paul Mooney, of course, is from Oakland as well, where he spent a great deal of time in Oakland. And you know, mm-hmm. as you can you know, people from Oakland have a certain ghetto say quoi, I'll call it. We're very, very connected to our people and we're very matter of fact. And I like those qualities that I got from Oakland. Plus I started doing television in Oakland.
2: So how do you how do you go from that that love that passion for this thing that you've now discovered to, to stumbling into stand-up comedy. Like I wanna know I wanna know where where were you in your life when the idea of stand-up comedy came along?
3: Well, after college, I moved to Long Beach. Okay. And I was living in the LBC and I had a roommate <laughs> who was a beautiful British black girl. She looked like Sade, but taller and thicker. And she would talk like this shadow. ox and, you know, everyone just loved listening to her speak. But she was a call girl. And she could talk the money out of anybody's pocket with that accent and that body. So one of her regulars was a comic. And they started dating. So he would come over to the house, would listen to me just around the house talking about trash and stuff. And he said, you know, you really funny. He said, I, I, uh, I run a, uh, or I'm the host at a comedy club in Long Beach. This club was called Miss Wiz back in the day, and he said, "If you ever want to do comedy, you come down to my room. I'll put you on the minute you walk in." And I said, "I don't want to be no comedian," but then I had a, you know how they 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 have the phrase repressed memory? Okay. A memory came back to me to where I remember when my parents would leave the house, we had what they called a high fi It was a Um, a stereo system that was encased in like a wooden type of like bookcase looking thing and you would open it up and you would turn it on and then you would put the LPs on and I would do that when my parents would leave. I would listen to the Red Fox LPs, the Richard Pryor, Bill Cosby and Flip Wilson and there was a little light at the bottom of the hi-fi that would come on when it was warmed up and I used to lay on the floor and put my I, up to the light, and pretend like I was in a comedy club. And this oh was God. when I was young, and I didn't even remember that until years, years, years later. So one night, uh, me and my girlfriends were on my balcony drinking homemade margaritas, beautiful on each night. <laughs> it was warm and all that stuff. And I said, you know, let's go down to that that guy's club. Now, I did not write jokes. I've never written a joke.
2: I've heard this about you.
3: Like like and mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. So I knew a couple of things that happened to me that I thought was funny, and I said, well, I'll just go talk about that, which is my style still to this day. I'm a storytelling mm-hmm. type of comic. I'm not a joke-telling type of comic. So we went down to the club, and sure enough, he put me on stage. And I killed it the first day I was there. First day I ever did stand, uh, did stand-up comedy. I ripped the room telling about this story, blah, blah, blah. And when I got off stage, a man came up to me he said, you know, you, you're a funny little bitch. And I was like, thank you. And he said, here, let me give you my card. You need to come down to my club. And that was Robin Harris. Uh, Get the I met Robin Harris on the first day that I ever did stand up. Ever.
2: Get the fuck out of yeah. here. Wow. i got his card
3: today. Wow. I laminated it. So then I went to the, you know, Regency West. It was called the Comedy Act back then. Went to the Comedy Act. And then Robin and and there was, you know, young DLs and young Chris Tuckers and young everybody like that. So that's how it started.
1: Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is slaycation.
2: I mean, when you you notice I'm listening, right? And the reason why I'm listening is because it's it's so intriguing. It really. Yeah, is you don't
3: know none of this. Though.
2: None of it. It's so the intriguing. Audience, like when you,
3: finding out. You're finding out at the same time as they are
2: when i when i hear stories that are connected to you know our our comedic legends our comedic greats and you you see the individual that was tied into that that's mind-blowing to me how how does that make you feel looking back at it now right that your interest in the comedy well it immediately put you around some of the biggest faces today in comedy like your your reason for funny is no. It's no coincidence, right? Like you know, you're funny, but the reason for like the, I guess you could say the the premium or the the high quality or the longevity that you've been able to do the craft in well, it comes within your association. You're when you're surrounded by greatness, you have no choice but to become great. When you look back at that now, you talk about the Robin Harris, the DL, the Chris Tucker, all of these people that you were around. Is that mind blowing to you today? Like, is that is that a is that something that like you have to you have to go back and think about and, and really grasp? Or or is it just like, you know, it, it was what it was back then? How do you take that? Like, how, how does that feeling feel?
3: Well, first of all, I, 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 I want to debate what you said. You can be around greatness and still not get great. Okay. Just because you're around greatness doesn't mean you're gonna get great.
2: How close are you to the greatness?
3: Well, I mean, it's all in God's hands. I feel like this was destiny for me to meet Robin that day.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, I have a a extensive criminal background between getting out of college and starting comedy, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, in Long Beach, I did some things that wound me up in jail uh, many, many years later. How much time did you do? Uh, I robbed a bank. How much time? Four months and 18 days on a one year uh, sentence. They didn't put me in the penitentiary, I guess because it was my first offense. Mm -hmm. I, I did less time than a year. If you do a year, in county, you're going to, if you do 366 days, you're gonna to go to the penitentiary, but wow. I didn't. So anyway, I think that was great as well, because nobody can tell me about these conditions and these things, I've been there, so I know. Mm-hmm. And that helped to form the references that I can use in my comedy, and and uh, it's a way to also purge yourself of things that are inside you doing comedy. It's like my, It's like church for me. Um, I did not, I still, it still puzzles me to this day, how this has evolved for me. Um, some people set out to be a comic and they set out to be a great one. That wasn't my goal. It just sort of was my calling. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it was my goal. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know.
2: What women were around back then?
3: Well, Laura Hayes was my mentor because she also was from Oakland, California. hmm and everything I needed to know and everything I wanted to know, I sort of just tagged along with her, even when she moved to Los Angeles, because she came to Los Angeles first. When I came to Los Angeles, I didn't know my north, south, east from west. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't talk like that in the Bay, turn right, turn left, that's it. Go toward the bridge. (laughs) (laughs) But in LA, it's north, south, east, west. Uh, Laura was there at that time uh, Adele Givens was around at that time, Melanie Camacho, Hope Flood, Mm. um, and and Wanda White, uh, Dana Point, um, uh, and even, uh, uh, yes, uh, Samoa wasn't so much around in L.A., but she was around at that time, in that era, and, um, uh, just lots, 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 lots of girls. Yvette Wilson.
2: How you feel you were received, um, coming onto the comedy scene, you know, as the new, as the new woman on the scene, right? Were you, were you welcomed or was there a competitive nature back then? Like, what was that, what was that space in comedy like for a woman back then?
3: Well, I don't know how I was received, but I know that I've always been a confident, given off the aura of being confident, I've always been a confident person. I've always felt like I could stand toe to toe with any of these guys because there's always not enough women in the scene. And if you look at the audience, the audience is usually like 85% female. The females are probably the ones who bought the tickets mm-hmm. for the guys so that they came with. So, um, I think that uh, just being really, really honest to who I am and being connected to Oakland and regular people and like my seven brothers and sisters are funny. So it's, well, six of them one of them really ain't got a good sense of humor, but anyway. And, and, <laughs> and uh, toning that within the family and just taking experiences that happen to me that I know that happen to other people and talking about that. So I've always been sort of like a representative for the people. And um, I I think that the comics received me because they respected me. You don't get received well if you're not respected in this game. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they respected me and respected my comedy. Now, I got the name The Original Bad Girl of Comedy in Oakland because there was a time where I was just drinking too much and way too argumentative. And confrontational, a lot of people don't like confrontation. I live for confrontation.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And, um, you know, the jail uh, story had been out. They had to have a telethon for my daughter when I went to jail to help her dad with money. And so I had a rep, you know, I was throwing glasses and bitches in the club before any of these Real housewife shows started. Mm-hmm. So I had that to overcome. They would mm-hmm. see me coming. They would think I was gonna be drunk all the time. I was, back then. They would think that I was gonna fight somebody. I did, back then. So mm-hmm. I, I, but there's a certain respect that come with that too, cause in my, I didn't lose my fights, you know. I wasn't, I wasn't no punk. And I would confront a man. Mm-hmm. So that's just the s- s- southern girl in me. You know, we you know I'm from south.
2: Do you feel like when you say, you know, there's a lot that you had to overcome? Right. Um, and you overcoming that or you getting past that, was that a thing that you had to really work on? How how do you get past that? When you say like I live for confrontation or like that's who I was then, how do you how do you bag that up and say I need to control this? What what was the point in your life and in career where you were like I have to progress past this in order to move forward in my in my journey?
3: It wasn't until I came to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, L- Laura Hayes uh, gave me a big lesson, and she said, you need to shut the fuck up and listen. And when I started listening, and when people was like, I'd still be the baddest comic baby in the room, but didn't nobody want to fuck with me because I was confrontational. I would cuss people out. I was drinking that brown-looking, drinking it a lot. And I had mm-hmm. other things besides my father's death to overcome as well, you know? So um, I think that when I came to L.A. and I realized that this was going to be a business for me and not just me venting and purging on stage, I think I got all my therapy out in Oakland. And when I came here to L.A. is when I knuckled down. Now, I didn't just come to L.A. and it all happened. I had to move back to Oakland like three times. The third time I came back to L.A., that's when it stuck i had gotten married i had had a kid before i got married i had lost my mom and all all kind of stuff uh was going on so i i uh i didn't get really serious until i
2: came to la i'll say when you when you say like you know you went back and forth three times uh from la to oakland was there ever a point where you were like you know what this just ain't it it's not what oh no it. never never Mm-mm. you stay true to even it even
3: when i used to go to uh, i used to come to la For any reason, because first of all, it was always warmer in LA than it was in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. I would hop in the back of people's cars, I would get on a bus, I would do whatever it was to give me the LA, I was drawn here. And when you come from the Bay Area to Los Angeles, if you're in a car, there's an area you have to go through called the Grapevine. And as I was always going through the Grapevine, there's mountains. It's like you gotta, there's like the Bay Area is here, then there's mountains. And you come into the valley of Los Angeles into, and into L.A. And I always used to say my money is right on the other side of these mountains. Mm-hmm. I just had to get over there and I got to stay. I know my life is on the other side of these hills. My success is and, there. Uh, it's right
2: there. Yeah. I know where it's at. I know I can see where it is. Yeah. I just right. have to, I got to figure out how to make it work. That's strong. Right. That's real strong. What was it? Give me the moment for you when when you said, oh my God, it's about to happen. Like things are... Things are changing now the the money is about to change. The opportunity was about to change. Was there a defining moment with you on stage with you connection? What was the what was the moment where you said, you know what? It's about to pay off.
3: Well, it still hasn't paid off. First of all, I I don't have any show. Mm -hmm. I don't have any special. Mm -hmm. I'm living Mm -hmm. well, but I'm living within my means. I'm not, you know, I don't have to pay for the pool, man. And I got a couple of whips, but you know, I mean, I have to live within, in my community too. You know, you don't park a Rolls Royce in the driveway on Slots, and that's just not the way that it goes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that the only thing Mm -hmm. I really cared about was being able to tell my stories, not have to work in a job environment that I did not like, and to be able to be creative and to, um, it was it's something when you come to LA and you you start meeting the people that you've seen on television all your life. That's a mind fuck. That's like, oh my God, I could smell, mm-hmm. you know, this person. Or I could look at their hands. Or that, that was a, a really big thing for me, to meet people who I had seen on television. I would say BET's Comic View kicked it off for me because that was when Black people were beginning to be seen regularly and in mass on television
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so
3: i i did like eight seasons eight seasons of comic view when i started doing comedy i didn't even have blonde hair my hair was black mm-hmm. and um you get recognition from that i
2: mean that was the biggest thing when you talk about just the world of black comedy. Um, I know that we highlight Def Jam a lot and as we should, Def Jam was huge for us for our culture. But sometimes I feel like we bypass the 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 stamp and staple that BET had and played for so many. Like when you you talk about the world of survival for a comic and road money, um BET is what provided those opportunities because like you said, it was in such rotation that the people that you became familiar with I mean, that's the only credit that you heard from B.E.T.'s Comic View. From B.E.T's Comic View. Y'all seen them. Y'all seen her on B.E.T.'s Comic View. Um, it was a thing that with a nice number of those under your belt, I mean, you were you were headlining. You were you were touring and 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 making good money um in a world where once upon a time there wasn't any, right? There, like we didn't have uh those platforms. I can't even say we because. I was a latecomer um towards the end of all of those things. I, I wasn't in the beginning stages of it. Uh so I definitely know what you mean when you say BT. That was it. That was the moment.
3: Yeah, I never did Def Jam. People do introduce you and say, BT, come through Dev Jam. i never did Def Jam. I wished I had have done Def Jam, but at the time, you know, Sumner and I weren't weren't saying eye to eye. So he mm-hmm. didn't not choose me. Mm-hmm. And um I really wish I could have been in that era, but I'm okay. Because being that I come from the theater and also didn't just do stand-up comedy, but I acted as well, there were a lot of casting agents who if they saw Def Jam on your resume, they wouldn't see you because Mm. they didn't have the wherewithal to know that just because I cuss on Def Jam doesn't mean I can't do this job over here. And they would put Mm. you in a box. BET was more television mainstream friendly, and mm-hmm. like we didn't really cuss that much on mm-hmm. BET. So at one point, and the people probably don't know, but I do know that that doing Def Jam hurt you in the acting field at this particular time. Mm-hmm. You know.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, when you when you think about the 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 world of come up, I mean they. There was it was including those comics that you were familiar with from those places um, in our culture specific movies. Like when you think about House Party, when you think about. Um, Oh God! I'll, I'll tell you another big one: House Party Friday. Like these are all movies that were curated off the comedic talent um, that flourished on those on on Def Jam, or you know, some of those guys were on Comic View too. So sure. Sure, I definitely understand what you're saying.
3: Yeah, and I wanted to do all those, but I wasn't living in L.A. yet. I mm-hmm. was coming from Oakland, coming to do Comic View, going back to Oakland. So I feel like if you were in L.A. and as they saw. In the documentary Fat Tuesday, if you were mm-hmm. in LA and if you were going to you know Fat Tuesday, which I did come from Oakland to go to Fat Tuesday, but I wasn't there weekly like people who lived here. They would people would come to Fat Tuesday to pull talent. So I mm-hmm. wasn't here for that. So I, I didn't get in and on any of those, but I certainly wanted to do. Them.
2: Fat Tuesday was so mind blowing to me in the beginning. Did you, you know, watch the documentary? Like... Yes, yes. It was so. It was done well too. It yeah, well, Guy job. Tori. Shout
3: out to Guy Tori
2: for that. The amazing job. And I mean, you know, when I when I first was here, Guy Tori and I, um, we were really close. Like he, we were we were hanging out, and Guy was like the first association of real success that I had as a friend, right? Like as as somebody that was actually working in the business and doing comedy. But, like, you know, he was the definition of, oh, my God, this is success. Yeah, like but he's... Joe
3: did it first, though. You know, Joe was doing poetic justice, and Joe was... I mean, I didn't know Joe. Jam. Joe, yes. Joe was out there first, and that was Joe an was example, big. too. And then I yeah. I thought it was amazing. You got Joe and Guy, and you had Eddie and Charlie, and you had the Wayans, and the family thing, and the and the and the, the sibling thing I thought was really awesome, you know?
2: Well, Joe Joe's was so big, you know, like there was no way that I would come across Joe, right? Oh, like in that oh. in that time in my career, Joe wasn't where where I was or in those spots, right? Ooh. Like Guy Guy was more of the hustler and okay. doing things, and I I remember that's when like Guy was getting like those smaller movie roles, but that were like important, right? And and uh, I think it was American Me. That he had booked uh it was like a big a big deal and i'm like damn he's like that's what it is i can't wait how you getting these parts and he was the first one like oh man agents you know manager man you got to get somebody that's going to make the calls for you that you can get in those spaces but he was like he was the voice of here's how it gets done uh here's what you got to do right but joe i mean fuck. like you said joe is so goddamn massive I mean, you go back to when Joe was performing with the vest and no shirt.
3: Yeah, yeah, and the and the hat.
2: And the hat. Yeah. Like Joe, Joe Tory was,
3: was yeah, huge. and all that stuff. It's uh, you know, um being this sibling, being the sibling of somebody who's already done it at uh, is a hard thing, you know, because absolutely, you know, Charlie and I were good friends before I ever got in. Eddie's or or to me cuz Eddie you know probably knew about me before I got to him but you know you have to overcome the oh that's Eddie's little brother oh that's Joe Toy That's guy Toy Joe's little brother or oh, that's uh uh, uh Marlon Wayne's Keenan's little brother that's a hard yeah. right thing to do i haven't seen any sibling sisters in the business at all
2: that's fair true. i don't know any mm-hmm. i don't
3: and they don't that's even that's have it. any duets anymore. They used to have a, uh you know, you got the Mooney twins, but they used to also have two guys, Arsenal and Mitchell, which mm-hmm. were a comedy team back then too. Oh, I, I'm I'm just a little encyclopedia of
2: You I love it though, Lunel. Uh, I, I love it. Like you this this walk down uh you know down down the lane of history of you is dope as fuck. I, I'm I'm literally taking it all in.
0: It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts.
2: You then uh, come across uh, a, a comedian that his rise to success was like nothing we've ever seen. I mean, you know, when you talk about the world of Cat Williams, you got to talk about just coming on the scene, fucking destroying... Uh, not just comedy clubs, but you know the the television, the television world of performance, and he takes off. At some point in time, uh, you and Cat cross paths, and you then start touring with Cat. How did that happen? How did that relationship come about?
3: Well, we met in Oakland. Cat was living in Oakland. Okay, so you knew Cat from back then. Yeah. Okay. We 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 were broke together.
2: <laughs> okay.
3: You know, and Cat um, came to. LA, I guess. I don't know what his actual footsteps and journey was, but I know that I've never been on tour with anybody but Kat. I -hmm. was on tour with Kat 15 years ago. I'm on tour with Kat right now. Mm -hmm. But nobody in the industry has ever took me on tour, period, except
2: Kat. Mm -hmm. And that and that circle that you guys have created, you stayed true to. It's been Cat, uh, you, um, Red Grant, and I believe um, was was Melanie ever with you guys?
3: Melanie was Melanie. on the first tour, yeah, for sure. We made a movie. Yes. We did yes. About the road.
2: About you guys on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, that, but that circle, that unit, um, it's like I said, it's something that you guys have stayed true to, and I would assume that's become something like a, a family, right? That you guys have now gotten closer and closer over the years. Oh
3: yeah, absolutely. Um, Red and myself and Cat for for sure. Red and Cat definitely are like brothers, and we have Mark Curry, who's also from Oakland.
2: Oakland. Wow. On
3: tour with us right now, and it's it's. It's been a wonderful, wonderful learning experience. And
2: Why do you say that? Why do you say learning experience?
3: Well, because touring and doing arenas is a different experience than doing clubs. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. also coming out of this COVID thing, because when we were on tour before, we used to do meet and greets. Mm-hmm. But then Cat was so popular that we literally had to stop because let's say you're in the three thousand seat theater.
2: You got all three. And you do people a, and do, it yeah, and two thousand
3: nine hundred ninety-five yes. people want <laughs> to get their picture taken.
2: Yeah. Now you're yeah.
3: in the theater two and a half hours after the show is over. Mm-hmm. Security's going into overtime. Their union, the janitorial yeah. service, so we just we had to stop.
2: It's too much. It becomes too much. Um, I will say this, man. You know, I've, I've toured for for years, right? And, you know, there's only, there's only a certain amount of people that have done it at a certain level and have done it consistently. But I will say that I'm, I'm very envious of any type of union that's built in the space of comedy, right? And you know, one thing that that people have always questioned me on is like, hey Kevin, why do you just have the same people? Why don't you take different people out with you? And I said, for me, it's always been about knowing the person around you, right? When you're on the road, um these cities present different things and if you don't know the person that you're with who knows the type of shit that you can get into or that they can get into or just the problems and i said the comfort that we've been able to build over the years and trust in one another um has allowed us to be a well oiled machine and the way that we move in achieving the success um you talk about 15 years you know that's nothing to be frowned on right that's not that's not a chump change of fucking of time that's a significant amount of time, and I I think that you only reach that success, of course, not just because of the talent that you all have and the talent that you guys are a part of or attached to on the tour, but it's because of the friendship, the connective tissue, the ups and downs that can be thrown away and you guys always have a solid mindset of what we are and what we're here to do together. So yeah, I just want to give your flowers um, and you guys your flowers in that regard because it's not many you don't have many and when you when you talk about us when you talk about you know the the comics of color um it's good to see things stay together and people stay together and for you um this is where I've heard the biggest rumbles of Lunell. I've heard the biggest rumbles of Lunell and her talent um from being on that tour and yo you know, you know Lunell tears these bitches down like following Lunell is a fucking problem did you feel like at some point in these arenas that you got to a point where where the confidence just started to grow and grow and grow did it ever get to a space where you were like I need to do my own or I want my own I want to do my my thing as well my version of a one woman show my version of the special like where's your mindset with that now in your career
3: well first of all um i think not not having been on the road with anybody but cat i think that the best tours are the ones where the people around you have your back they know what antagonizes you and they try not to have that around you. They know who antagonizes you and you try to be a buffer for that. You you know we've we've grown that way. I wouldn't want to be on tour with people that I don't really get along with just for the sake of the tour. I might mm-hmm. do it, but I would be miserable and I probably wouldn't stay. So we generally genuinely do have I like to think a love for one another and i think that mm-hmm. that has been known through even the time when i was on tour with them they knew i was some people would say you know that's you know Cat's girl they would holler out his name at me cat williams mm-hmm. you know before they knew my name and uh i think that the 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 tour is so successful because cat has been able to plug into a a area that everybody's not at. He always includes women in his tour.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: He never mm-hmm. talks bad about women on his tour. He doesn't say bitches and all this kind of stuff. He will, but not towards you know, women in general, like in the audience. You know, it's
2: in context. It's in context within the
3: set. And um that makes women very happy. And you know, when women are happy, you know, happy wife, happy life, when mama's happy, everybody's happy. Mm-hmm. And um, we uh we don't just communicate at work you know we talk not at work and yeah. um we have children the same age she's been my daughter's like uncle since she was like seven years old mm-hmm. and she's 26 now and to be back on tour with him is great for her too to see what real friendship is about and stuff like mm-hmm. that and and um uh, you also, he picks people that deserve a break and people who are talented enough to, to take that break and build something for themselves. with Would mm-hmm. I like to be uh, in that position? I don't know, because heavy is the head that wears the crown. Absolutely. There's a lot of responsibility that comes when that's your face plastered outside. Your name, nobody's coming to the Cat Williams tour for us. They're coming for a Cat. We are just the cherry on top of the pie. You know, mm-hmm. I think we got fans, sure, but as his, this, this is, you know, his tour. If I had an t- opportunity to tour like that and I thought that I could fill rooms like that, maybe I would do that. I'm not, you know, giving up anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Maybe I might have a tour. I still have things, lots and lots of projects in development for me, that mm-hmm. you know, we've been trying to get, we've been we've been pitching shows. Me and me and my team have been pitching shows for ten years, but I think all, that all it also, takes is one.
2: <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't matter the time. All it takes is one. Yeah, that's all it takes.
3: Yeah, it takes the right one though. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. that's why. I like, I'm trying to be the next black female in late night. That's my thing. I, I like. Think I was made for late night. Now they've had black women in late night. I don't feel they had the right one. Cause if they had, then they'd still be there. You'd know?
2: still be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: So I'm tired of waking up at eleven when my TV's on and it's just a whole snowfall <laughs> of white men, white men, white men. Black women are up late too. They're doctors. They're nurses. They're firemen. They're people come home and watch late night. And I feel like I have a place there. So that is one of the things that we're trying to do. Is, is um, I'm gonna actually we have a break in the tour, and I'm going to film a pilot my own money uh, uh
2: as a template for what I would like my late night show I love it so that's I love
3: my, it.
2: my goal by the way I love I love investing in you um you know I love seeing your vision seeing your your dream the thing that you know um and and executing right like when you when you do it yourself the dopest thing about it is knowing that you took the time and put the energy into the thing that you feel like you can do Well, Uh, I think think the the
3: dopest thing about it is that you're giving your audience what they really, really want. Like, Mm. I have fans from Oakland that are still doing just like this, waiting for a special or waiting to see me weekly. During the quarantine, where I'm sitting right now, and I made my dining room into a studio, and I did a YouTube show. I have 62 episodes up on YouTube. And we built a large following. And I call them my lunatics. My lunatics are my my fans that, that came at me when we were doing every Wednesday at 3 p.m. We would uh-huh. go live and do YouTube. That was the template. But before I left Oakland, California, I was working for the Soul Beat Television Network, which was an all-Black-owned and operated television network in Oakland, California, before BET ever came about. So I've been on TV. I was on TV, and I was famous, so to speak, before I ever came to L.A. I just had mm-hmm. to start over out here. And I didn't start exactly from scratch because they used to have a thing called the Bay Area Black Comedy Competition in Oakland. And all the comics that would come from all over the country come to Oakland. Most of them would come on my TV show mm. for exposure and to, and to promote the, the competition, you know, get some tickets sold. And Tony Spires was very grateful for that. So I already knew some comics when I came here from being on my show. But I was, I was made for this. I can you know, to be able to do a YouTube show or Instagram live or anything like that, you have to be able to you have to be comfortable enough to talk to a little dot for hours and hours and hours and hours or whatever it is. And I'm comfortable doing that, I've been comfortable doing that. So we're gonna see what happens, but I'm not gonna give up until I'm in the urn, so to speak.
2: God damn it. Lenel, no, I, I you know, I could go on after that, but I don't I don't know why. Why why would I after such an amazing wrap up? And look information is fucking is the best tool is the it's the best used tool in our world today data information analytics stories uh it can be the best and
3: it can be the worst
2: that oh my god it you could yes yes but in this case
3: how it's used yeah
2: in this case i'm gonna say it's the best uh i had no idea about your connective tissue um, to so many in the beginning stages, I had no idea about your journey in comedy um, from Oakland to LA, and um, your background. I knew I knew uh, about the history. You know, you had some history with some ups and downs. Um, you know, I've been around you, and you've joked about that, but I never knew in depth what those things were and you know the story of you your siblings your father um your aunt taking you in growing up in the suburbs going back to oakland because that's where you started the love for theater being the first thing that you wanted to do and the reason for that why transitioning into comedy through a fucking amazing bridge of opportunity a a call girl and her goddamn uh client i'll tell you who the comic comic
3: was when we get out the air
2: (laughs) I, I love that like it's just it's it's destiny is destiny, right? And the direction that you get pointed in sometimes isn't an accident. And you're here for a reason. Um, you know, you're you're still present. You're still you're still very much a powerful personality. And that's just on stage and off stage as well. Like talking to you is easy. This isn't a, a forced conversation. If you notice, I was able to let you talk. And fucking listen. And that's the sign of a, of a great conversation. And in this case, I hope my listeners, I hope you guys fucking took away a lot, man. Because that's what this show's about. So I get inside the minds of brilliant comedians. And oh my God, goddamn. what an amazing minds this was today, guys. We got to talk to Lunell and understand her in the way that I have yet to. And thank God that I got to. Lunell, you're dope as fuck. You're dope as fuck. And I mean that.
3: Can I give up my social media?
2: You can do whatever the fuck you want, Lunell. Yes, please.
3: Okay, so when you guys listen to this interview or watch this interview, please hit me up in my DMs and my Instagram at Lunell L U E N E L L. It's my Instagram. My Facebook is the official Lunell. That's my fan page, and I don't have Twitter. So if you're talking to Lunell on Twitter, it's it's a bot. It's not me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I have a movie coming out Juneteenth called Block Party. It's the first movie about Juneteenth that's been made by Black people since Juneteenth was made into a national holiday. It stars Margaret Avery. Of course, you know it's Sugar Avery from The Color Purple. And it has some other guests in it that I'm not gonna tell. It's amazing. Some people might've seen me on Instagram wearing like all these colorful wigs. That's for that movie. And of course, once again, I wanna promote uh, Fat Tuesday. If you watch that on Amazon Prime, I'm also going to be performing in L.A. May 3rd at the Improv for the Netflix is a Joke Comedy Festival. And, um, you know, you'll see me around. I'll
2: be around. Lunel, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, guys, I don't need to say give an applause because I know right now your mouths are open and you are blown away. What a story. What a time. Uh, this is Comedy Gold Minds. We'll see you next time. Comedy Goldmines is a serious XM
0: and LOL audio production.
2: Executive produced by Kevin Hart, Ty
0: Randolph, and Eric Weil. With Tastemakers Media, Emil Garner and Ian McDonnell. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.